Welcome to the Buried Treasures Podcast, brought to you by Mazid Uthman, where I interview a new guest every week to discover their journey. I'm Hamza Warsi. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah, we have uh, a very special guest, uh, someone everyone has seen all over YouTube. Uh, he has been reciting the Quran daily in Ramadan for us. He has led Salah here. Um, he is the resident scholar, the Imam, the Mufti, uh, Mufti Zishan Ahmed. Mashallah, Jazakallah Khairan for joining us. Jazakallah Khairan for having me. Nice. Uh, this this isn't part of your job description that you have to do this, you know. No, it's not. Yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Alhamdulillah. But yeah, uh, you know, Alhamdulillah, we have Mufti Zishan here. I just wanted to get to know a little bit more about you. Um, we've known each other for a little bit of time, uh, and, and it's just um, for the community to understand, you know, your studies, your background, and things like that. So I just wanted to know um, who you are and what you're doing currently. Yeah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Yeah, so um, alhamdulillah when I heard you were doing this uh, podcast, sit down, I was very excited um, to be able to sit down with you and to speak about uh, different things. Um, my journey through life, <laughs> my how I ended up here at Masjid Uthman. Yeah, inshallah. So um, where were you born and raised? Um, what brought you to Chicago? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Springfield, Ohio, um, which is about five, five and a half hours away from here. And I moved to Chicago when I was 14 years old. I was in ninth grade, went to CPSA for a little bit at that time. That's how we know each other. Um, I think you were in eighth grade at the time. Um, I was in ninth grade. Um, And uh, I have been here ever since. I did move back briefly to Ohio for, for a short portion in my 10th grade year, and then I joined Hivth, so I, I, I've been here ever since. Okay, nice, mashallah. So you've been around the Chicagoland community long enough now. I have, yeah, yeah, for 12 plus years. So why did you, what, why did you want to go study? So when I was at CPSA, alhamdulillah, um, there were really good influences. There were uh, some teachers who were really good influence on the students. Mm. And they, um, they were like really religious and pious individuals that the students used to look up to. So I was very heavily influenced by them. Um, I thought that they were really cool. Um, and I really wanted to study because of that. Actually, when I was uh, in Springfield, Ohio, there were very few Muslims in general um, like everyone knows everyone. It's a small town. But, um, and there are very few Hufad as well. Very few Hufad and ulama. As a matter of fact, there was, only, there was only one Hafid at that time in the entire city, and that was the Imam. He was also an Alim, but nobody really respected Ilm at that time in the sense that, like, this is a scholar of Islam. It was more that, you know, he's the Imam, he leads the Salah. So I really didn't even know what an Alim was at that time. Um, but he was a Hafid. And then when I came to Chicago uh, and I joined CPSA, in my ninth grade year, I was really surprised that uh, there were Hufad in my class even, uh, my, the same age as me, 15 years old. Um, and throughout the school, there were so many Hufad in eighth grade, seventh grade, obviously 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. Um, and I thought that that was really cool. So that, uh, you know, just the entire Mahol in Chicago, the entire environment is completely different. So many more Muslims, uh, ilm, knowledge, scholarship. And so that really influenced me to want to study. I mean, honestly, they call it Chicago Sharif for a reason, mashallah. Yeah, they do. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So uh, now you're inspired by your, by the teachers that you're surrounded by in your high school. Uh, why did you choose the institute that you chose and where did you go study? So when I was at CPSA, I decided that I really wanted to do an alim course. And I spoke to my parents about it. And um, they really didn't know what alim course was at the time. Uh, we were all new to this. Um but they agreed, alhamdulillah. And so when I, uh, when we were looking for different institutes to study at, um, we actually were not thinking about IIE at that time. Um, we checked out some of the other madaris. Uh, we checked out one madrasa in New York. Um, and um, it was a Dar al in New York. Um, we went there. Um, we decided 
to look elsewhere. Uh, I didn't enroll in, in there at the time. Then we went to Canada. Uh, we checked out another madrasa in Canada. Uh, it didn't work out as well. I didn't. I didn't start studying there. We just went to visit, um, and and we didn't. We weren't too interested. So we came back, and we started to look at okay, are there any more local options? And then we found IIE. And IIE, um, more local in the sense that it's only five hours away from home. And so at that time, I wasn't really too. Um, it wasn't anything like I. I wasn't planning on doing hifz at that time. I was planning on just studying. I really wanted to do an alam course. So IIE, when we went there, what they said at first was that they, you cannot do hifz and high school at the same time. And so you had to join, uh, uh, sorry, you cannot do alam course in high school at the same time. So I had to do hifz in high school at the same time. So in essence, I wasn't able to join alam course right away. And they wanted me to do hifz instead. So that's what led me to doing hifz. Um, and alhamdulillah, after joining IIE, I, I just really... Uh, grew fond of it. As a matter of fact, I remember the first time um, when I came to IIE, they encouraged me to stay for the Darul Hikma program. There's a Darul Hikma program coming up, um, and I think you were there as well. Um, I remember that one very clearly, mashallah. That's the first time I stayed over at IIE as well. Yeah, so so I stayed there. I met a lot of people. It was more of a you know why don't you check it out type of thing, um, and I stayed there. Uh, it was an absolutely amazing experience. Um, I think that was the first time I met Mona Hamza Makbul as well. Perhaps. Um, that was the first time I met him. Okay. Um, uh, I remember uh, a lot of ulama. I remember sitting down in the, like Mona Bilal had his own uh, gathering after one of the talks or like late night. Um, Mona Hamza had his own like sit down. Um, Mona Abdul Nasser Jangda came yeah, yeah. as well. Uh, Mufti Sain Kamani was there. There were a lot of Sheikh Amin spoke as well. There, there were so many ulama that were there at the time, and um, I really had an amazing experience. I decided that I really wanted to stay here, um, and that's what led me to staying at IIE after that. So a couple weeks later, I joined. Nice, mashallah. So you had to do your hivs first. So can you speak a little bit about that and how it was and who your teachers were? So I started hiv in. Um, as soon as I came and uh, I, I consider myself a little bit fortunate Alhamdulillah because uh, my teacher Hafid Bashir Hafid Bashir is, uh, was one of the teachers at that time at IIE he's actually a graduate from another teacher who was teaching at IIE at the time Mulan Aziz uh, Sahib who is very well known in the Chicagoland community mashallah. so he graduated under him and then he decided to teach at IIE after that so his class was actually full at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And he wasn't even there. He actually, it was during Hajj time that I joined IIE. And so he was gone for Hajj. He was performing Hajj that year. So I was in another teacher's class at the time. And uh, they basically told me that I'm going to be in Hafiz Bashir's class. I had no idea who it was. Two weeks later, he came back and I joined his class. And it was amazing. Uh, amazing. Absolutely amazing teacher. So you studied your whole time with Hafiz Bashir over there. So um, I started with Hafiz Bashir and I ended with Hafiz Bashir. But during that time, during uh, the two and a half years that I was doing Hiv, uh, he left for a couple of months. He was reciting to a teacher in Jordan. I believe it was in Jordan. Um, and he uh, went there to recite to get ijazah from him. So he left for about a month or two. Uh, during that time, Hafiz Mushtaba Ashfaq, who's also a well-known figure in this area, mashallah, he was teaching. Um, and uh, he was my teacher during that time period. So I started with Hafiz Bashir, and with Hafiz Bashir in the middle, uh, Hafiz Mushtaba. So alhamdulillah, uh, you know, Hafiz Bashir and Hafiz Mushtaba are two absolutely amazing uh, teachers, and alhamdulillah, I was able to benefit tremendously from them. Where's Hafiz Bashir now? Hafiz Bashir is in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. He's teaching in Columbus. He's teaching nice. in Columbus. Oh, awesome, awesome, great man. Um, can you walk me through a typical day in your studies with Hivs, because to my understanding, one number one, you're boarding there. It's a boarding madrasa. Uh, number two, you're also not only memorizing, you also have secular studies because you mentioned that you left around 10th grade in high school. Uh, can you explain a little bit of your daily activities? Yeah, so the way that the typical day would be at that time, and the schedule is a little bit different now, but um, a typical day would be 8 to 12 would be Hivs. Obviously, you wake up for Fajr. Um, then you do have some post-Fajr activities. Uh, the administration was not very fond of uh, people sleeping after Fajr. So, 
I'm so sorry. I'm only laughing because I know exactly what you're talking about. So uh, we weren't allowed to sleep after Fajr. So there would be like post-Fajr activities, um, um, like playing basketball or or uh, just doing random stuff. Wait, was this the... what You were there when... Rehan and Farhan were also there? I was. Yeah, I was actually the roommate as well. Oh, okay, nice. Mashallah, mashallah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, very uh, interesting room. We had a lot of fun people. A lot of fun people um, so in that room. You, when you were in the dorms, you were in the party room. <laughs> yeah. It was dubbed as the party room. Okay, so cool. What's interesting, it was, it, it was dubbed as a party room by the administration because uh, the students were very uh, interesting and they were very wild. Um and and by wild, obviously, it's like very tame com- com- compared to like what happens in like, like colleges and stuff. Like put it in perspective. It's, yeah. mashallah, a bunch of guys who are what? You guys are all around like 13, 14, 15, around that age, yeah, right? Stay up late, have fun, play games. Normal uh, kid activities. So uh, when I came, actually, uh, the administration really wanted me to be in a different room, which uh, later became dubbed as a pious room. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, he really, uh, one of the teachers really wanted me to be over there. Uh, and so uh, eventually, because I knew some of the guys in the party room, I really wanted to go there. And, and they were trying to talk me out of it, administration. Yeah. But um, alhamdulillah, I was able to go. And it, it was really fun. It was nice. We had a really good, uh, it was, was, uh, was a great time. Inshallah. So you said 8 to 12, or after Fajr, you guys had activities. Um, I'm assuming there was breakfast involved. And then 8 to 12, you guys would start classes. Yeah, exactly. So breakfast would be prior to 8 o'clock. And then we would have a uh, Hifz class from 8 to 12. Um, from 12 to 1, there would be class, like high school class, like the first period. And then there would be a break for Dhuhr and for lunch. And then I believe from like 2 to 4, uh, there would be uh, more classes for high school. Um, two more periods. And then there would be a break where students, they have a gym uh, now. Uh, well, they had a gym at that time too, but now it's like fully furnished. Um, at that time, like we would just play, it was like just cement, but we would still play basketball and everything. We would play in the park. Outside there was a, like a huge field that we would play football and all sorts of sports. Um, and then we had Hiv class again in the evening from like six to eight. Um, and so then after that would be dinner and then, you know, go to sleep. Dinner revised for the next day yeah, in, pre- in preparation. A bit of time between dinner and actually having to go to sleep. Yeah. But we would just, you know, hang out, just be with friends or revise. Uh, students who are more studious would take that, take advantage of that time. Yeah. Nice. MashaAllah. Did you, uh, when you were there, was, was it still pasta Mondays and biryani on Fridays? Um, no, no. So... Yeah, when I was first there, yeah, there were uh, there was biryani on Fridays. Actually, I actually believe that still continues till today. Really? But then um, there were there was a time where, yeah, I believe pasta on Mondays, biryani on Fridays, pizza on the weekends. Um, but yeah, and then there was also I think later on, it might have been during my alum course, we started doing like fish sandwiches on Fridays. I think. Nice. Yeah. Fish and chips. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there would be like French fries, I think. Actually, yeah, no chips, yeah, actual chips. I thought you were talking about like the British fish and <laughs> chips, but there'll be actual chips too, like barbecue chips, yeah. So let me ask you this. You moved away from home, technically, um, and now you're dorming at the madrasa. Were there any difficulties that you faced in the beginning being a young teenager living alone in a boarding madrasa? Yeah, for sure. Um, when I first joined... I was very homesick because it was the first time that I was away from home uh, in general, like living away from parents. Um, and so it was uh, very difficult at the beginning. Um, but um, yeah, and there were times where I really was thinking, like in the first couple of weeks where I was really thinking like, you know, uh, what did I sign myself up for? But alhamdulillah, after a couple of weeks, uh, I really just fell in love with the madrasa. I'll probably say like maybe a month, maybe a month into my studies there, I really just fell in love with the madrasa. Alhamdulillah, one of the things that really benefited me was that I have a lot of family in the area as well. Uh, my brother, uh, Farhan, was studying at uh, Benedictine University at the time. And so I would actually go to his place on some of the weekends. I have some other relatives as well um, around the area. So it wasn't as difficult. It wasn't like I was just completely away from family, which yeah. is difficult for a lot of a lot of the students they were. Um, I remember there was one of my classmates who uh, would only go home once a year. Um, which would be very difficult. Uh, he was living in a completely different state, so he would not see his family for, uh, you know, only uh, once a year. 
So Alhamdulillah, um, I had more relatives around here, so it was it was easier for me uh, in that sense. So I was just there five days during the week, and then go to you know a relatives' home on the weekend, then come back and start over again the next week. Nice, mashallah. How was graduation day? How was I mean? How long did you take? If you don't mind me asking, how long did you take for your memorization, and then uh, how was it leading up to the actual graduation? Yeah, so it took me around two and a half years uh, for the memorization, along with high school. Uh, so I graduated from high school at the same time that I graduated from HIF, so in the twelfth grade at the end of the year, um, and um, it was uh, it was amazing. It was a great feeling. Um, it was uh, it was beautiful. Um, still very close friends with a lot of the individuals that I graduated with at that time. Um, we still stick. Uh, we're still close in contact, and Alhamdulillah, everything. Uh, um, after that, um, so that was right when Hafiz Bashir was about to leave. So we were all like, all of his students were quickly trying to finish. It was it was kind of, it was really fun time because we wanted to finish under him. So everyone was racing. Yeah, everyone Mashallah. was racing. I remember me and my one of my friends, uh, Hafid Norman, um, he's probably going to be listening to this as well. Um, he's currently studying at Dar al Qasim, mashallah. He and I were like really racing. We, I think we, there was a point where we were doing like four or five pages a day. We were just uh, we were trying to uh, finish quickly before Hafid Bashir left because we wanted to finish under him. Nice, so you're mentioning that you're you're memorizing like about five pages. I'm assuming you're doing like a 15-liner. Yeah. So that's about a quarter a day. I'm assuming that's not for five ten oh, yeah, or anything. Sure. Yeah, that was that was uh, that was not the norm. That was definitely not the norm. Um, it was just in that last month that we were trying to finish. Um, prior to that, the norm would be um, at the very beginning. So Hafiz Bashir, his method uh, is um, Mashallah, is just a fabulous teacher. He's very particular about being strong. That your hifth has to be strong. It has to be paka. So. Um, at the very beginning, actually, like I had memorized most of the 30th juz, but he would still only have me recite like from the 30th juz, like one surah at a time, which is really frustrating for me because I'm like, I know these surahs, yeah. but he really wanted to make sure that number one, you have proper tajweed mm-hmm. and you're reciting properly with proper makharaj and letters, uh, letter pronunciation. And um, that is very strong. So that, you know, after that, even after that, um, he would only, when you're actually memorizing, at first, have you memorized like three lines a day, three lines a day or five lines a day, which, you know, is very difficult in the sense that, you know, you could do a lot more and you're being told you could to only do five lines. You're talking about memorizing three to five lines a day, yeah. living in a madrasa, yeah. spending at minimum six hours in a classroom setting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah. It, it may have been like five to seven lines, I would say, probably. Um and so that stuck for, for quite a few months. And then eventually, you know, he would move you to like half a page, you know, uh, which is around like seven, seven and a half lines. And then you would stay on half a page for a couple of months and then you would go to a page. And you would like, he was very against doing more than a page um, because even though you were able to do so, he wanted to make sure that, because most students, what they do is they memorize as many pages as they can, but then they forget it very quickly. So he wanted you to set, um, stick to a particular amount that you could get used to and that you were comfortable with and that amount was not too much that you would forget whatever you memorized previously. This is also he's instilling discipline Absolutely. in all of his students yeah, as well. That's the whole purpose of it. Um, and then after some time, like, you know, after maybe you memorize like 10 juz or 15 juz, he might bump you up to like a page and a half. And the maximum, I would say, would be two pages a day that he would allow his students to do. In that last month, he allowed us to do more. Um, for the purpose that we were trying to finish, um, but but yeah, um, I would say like one to two pages was the maximum amount that he wanted his students to do, because he wanted them to be very paka. Instead of just finishing quickly, he wanted them to retain whatever they had memorized. Mashallah. How was your door? Uh, so door um, during the hifth, he was very particular about how much we recited as well. Um, he wanted us to uh, revise one juz a day. Um, uh, at a minimum, at a minimum, uh, and so we would do uh, one juz a day. We would have to recite to him um, every single day, um, along with their sabak. And if uh, sometimes if we didn't do the door, if we didn't recite the one juz, he would not allow us to recite the sabak. So basically, it was all about discipline. That he really wanted to make sure that we're not forgetting whatever we learned, yeah. um, which is very different than how many other teachers teach. You know, just memorize, 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 and then maybe you could like revise at the end. But then by that time, 
when a student finishes, oftentimes they forget whatever they memorized. Like if you're on the 30th juz or on the 29th juz, it's very likely that you're going to forget what you memorized 28 juz again, uh, 28 juz before, if uh, you have not been revising. So he did not want that to happen at all. Okay. Nice, mashallah. When did you start leading tarawih? Um, tarawih, I started as soon as I finished. Um, as soon as I finished uh, Hivd, uh, that same year, I believe it was 2011, um, I led in Kansas. I led in Kansas. Um, and uh, Wichita, Kansas, which was uh, interesting. It was my first time leading. Um, I wasn't leading by myself. There was uh, an imam who was there at the masjid. And uh, he was, like, mashallah, very strong hafil. Uh, he was from Yemen. Beautiful recitation. Absolutely beautiful recitation. Um, but I guess they just wanted someone else to lead with him so that, you know, he can have a little bit more relaxed uh, taraweeh. So I led um, very nerve-wracking, very nerve-wracking. Like, I was, I was very nervous. Probably made a lot of mistakes. Uh, actually, I know I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> uh, but it was it was a, a beautiful experience. It was a wonderful experience. I was staying with a brother who was not married at the time. He, he had an apartment. Um, and we were staying together, a uh, Palestinian brother. Uh, it was it was just really fun. We had a lot of fun together. Where else have you led aside from Kansas? So aside from Kansas, I after that year, I led in uh, Cleveland for two years. Two different massages in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, which is actually far away from where I live. So it wasn't like local at all where, where, so in like Springfield, Ohio. All your Ramadans after, you're spending away from family yeah. at this point. Yeah. So Cleveland, Ohio is about three hours away from uh, my home in Springfield, Ohio. Um, and so I led there for two years. Then I led um, in Iowa for one year. Um, and uh, that same year, I led, uh, like, so the first 20 days, I led in Iowa with the intention that the last 10 days I was going to do Irtikaf at IIE. Um, I really wanted to do Irtikaf at IIE. Um, and then, uh, Alhamdulillah, like uh, during, uh, prior to like the last 10 days, I got a call from uh, um, Sheikh, Sheikh Hisham from uh, IFS and he uh, they needed someone to help out at IFS uh, with the Taraweeh. Um, Sheikh Nadikesh was leading at the time, but he had some like a, he had a sore throat and there was some difficulty leading. So they knew they wanted someone to help him out, um, or they wanted someone to assist him. I mean, uh, so I decided that Alhamdulillah, this is a really good opportunity. I took much of some of my teachers. Um, so I would stay during the daytime. I would be at IIE like doing Eretikaf, and then the evening time I would come to IFS and lead a few rakat over there. After that, um, I led at DIC. Downtown Islamic Center in Chicago, downtown Chicago. I lived there for three years. And then I have led here at Masjid Uthman for the past uh, two years. This would have been my third, but then because of COVID, uh, there was no Turawih here at the Masjid. And you did something kind of interesting, not this last Ramadan that just passed, but the Ramadan before when you were leading here. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so in, uh, I think it was probably 2000. 19, yeah, the last Ramadan. Not not this Ramadan, but the Ramadan prior to that. Yeah. Leading with uh, Mulana Suleiman uh, Hamid, who's a graduate from uh, Masjid Dar uh, Salaam. And he um, is uh, he has ijazah in uh, the riwayat. So, mashallah, he is uh, a sabah qari. Um, I believe he now is completing his ashara as well. So, he had an idea that why don't we recite in... Sorry to interrupt, uh, but can you just explain briefly when he when you're saying sabah and ashara? These are the different modes of recitation of the Quran that yeah. he has authority to recite in. Yeah. So most of the time, students uh, learn, or um, the first step is to first of all get ijaza um, in whatever recitation that you're familiar with. So most most students are familiar with hafsa and asa. Most most individuals in general, most Muslims across the world, they recite in hafsa and asim, except in some countries like in Africa, uh, Warsh, in some places in Morocco, in, in some other countries, they recite in a different riwayat. Um, now, for a student who wants to learn, for someone who wants to learn uh, more of the riwayat, they, uh, the first step uh, is to learn the seven modes of recitation. So there's seven main teachers who have two students each. Um, and then the step after that, so that's called a sabah qadi. 
um, who learns all those 14 recitations in essence. And then the ashara is when a student learns uh, the three on top of that who are not as, um, you know, they're not included among the seven. So there's three more that are attached to that and they also have two students each. So altogether, that would be Saba Ashara. So if you studied the seven plus the three, then you would be known as Saba Ashara Qari, um, which is a terminology that a lot of people use, like Saba Qari or Saba Ashara Qari. So, Mona uh, Suleiman had um and he uh, thought it would be really cool to recite in a different riwayah. So he and I uh, recited in the riwayah of Imam Shu'ba, uh, which is a student of Imam Asim. So Hafs that I mentioned is like the most common uh, recitation throughout the world. Um, his teacher was Imam Asim. And so Imam Asim had two students, Hafs and Shu'ba. So the recitation is very similar. So it wasn't very difficult. Um, so we recited. We decided to recite in the riwayah of Imam Shu'ba just as you know something interesting for for the barakah reciting a different riwayah. And it was really nice. Alhamdulillah. Nice, mashallah. That's pretty cool. Do you have any advices for? So I want to ask you in two folds. One for Hufad that are leading Tarawih because mashallah, you've been leading nine years now. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Almost a decade. Um, and also for anybody who's looking to do hivs, whether it's somebody who's young, old, somewhere in the middle, in between, anything like that, any advices you'd have for them? Yeah, so hivs is a long journey. It is definitely uh, a long journey. Um, I would, uh, I know a lot of students who join um, thinking that it's going to be very easy, uh, but it's not. Uh, it, there are times throughout the hivs where it becomes very difficult. Um, and that is, you know, shaitan obviously does not want a person to memorize the Qur'an. Shaitan does not want a person to get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in general. So when a person is memorizing the Qur'an, uh, that is something that they are doing day in and day out. They're reciting the Qur'an. They're constantly connected to the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Shaitan doesn't want that to happen. So shaitan will come to a person throughout their journey and try to uh, divert that person from memorizing the Qur'an in whatever way he can. So at the beginning of Hifz, you know, Shaitan might come and say, you know, it's such a long process. You have 30 just to go. Why are you going to waste your time? You know, two years, three years, four years. There are people who do it in five years. Why are you going to take that much time out of your life to memorize the Quran? And then, you know, you might get over that hill, that bump in the road. And then a couple of years later, you know, when you're around like five juz or ten juz, then you start thinking like, subhanAllah, there's still 20 juz left. The last ten juz that I memorized are not even that strong. You know, what am I supposed to do? Uh, why even, you know, I don't want the burden of being a hafid. People are going to look up to me as a hafid. You know, all of these types of wasawis and doubts and whispers take place. And then, you know, a person continues, continues, continues. And even till the end, a person might be like on their 28th, 29th juz, and they may be thinking to themselves that, uh, you know, why am I doing this? You know, like I'm going to be known as a hafid. People are going to be recognizing me. I'm not going to have a normal life anymore. You know, I'm going to be a stereotypical hafid or people might, uh, you know, judge me differently um, if I'm doing something. Because that, that's uh, that's that's an unfortunate reality that a, a hafid will be doing something and a non-hafid will be doing something, the same thing. But obviously, you know, the hafid will make Islam look bad just because uh, he has memorized the, Quran, memorized the Quran. And so, you know, do you have that that responsibility and so shaitan comes at you all different um times throughout your hips. So what one one advice that I would give is that don't don't listen to those whispers and just uh, stay focused and try uh, and understand your goal. Uh your goal is to memorize the Quran. Another thing is that I would say, you know, it's not necessary that a person enrolls in a full time hips program. I think um what is oftentimes overlooked a lot is the fact that you could just memorize the Quran by yourself. Um obviously you should cite whatever you're memorizing to someone who knows proper tajweed and makharish so that they can correct you. But you don't have to actually enroll in a, in a full-time hips program. You can memorize a couple of lines every day. And I'm sure people have seen those charts where like if you memorize like three lines a day, you finish in this amount of years, two lines, one line a day, you'll finish in this amount of years. So, I mean, um, you don't have to do something like full-time. You can just memorize at your own pace as well. But the main thing, you know, the main summary from all of that would be to stay connected to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, you know, this is the book of Allah. This is the thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us as a means of guidance until the last day. There will be no other book that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down. And if we just realize the magnitude of that, that this book that, you know, usually just sits on our shelf, 
collecting dust on it, unfortunately. This is the last book that Allah SWT is going to send as a means of guidance until the Day of Judgment. When we realize the magnitude of that, then that should um, push us to try to connect with it more. SubhanAllah. Wise words. Any advices for those leading Taraweeh? Yeah, for Taraweeh, um, there's so many different methods um, to revise. Um, and a person, depending on how many years they have been leading for, um, you know, they may have to revise more or not. I remember the first couple of years I was leading, like literally the entire day I was revising, like every a second that I was awake, um, most like almost every second I was awake, I was leading, I, I was revising because I would be so, I would be so nervous. Obviously that changes after you lead for uh, several years. But um, the biggest advice that I would give to a person who is leading Taraweeh is to understand that that time that you are revising for Taraweeh is the time, the the only or the time throughout the year that you are going to be putting the most effort into revising the Quran. So take advantage of that. Throughout the rest of the year, you know, one of the advices that one of my teachers gave, Mulana Arif Kamal actually, um, he gave this advice and it has stuck with me ever since. This was the first year I was leading Taraweeh. He told me this. He said, as soon as you're done leading Taraweeh, start revising right away. Because he said 90% of Hufal, what they do, he might have even said like 99%, what they do is that they think, you know what, I'm good now. I just let Taraweeh, I led, you know, I'm pakka, I'm good. I don't have to revise for a couple of months. And what happens is that, unfortunately, that mentality will be a reason for them not to touch the Quran until the next Ramadan. You know, I'll, I'll get to it next month. I'll start revising, you know, in two months, in three months, in four months. And then eventually, like, you know, one month before Ramadan, you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? And then Ramadan comes and you still haven't started revising. So uh, take advantage of that time. Understand that that's like the time that you have to revise the Quran. Take advantage of it. Um, recite for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't do it because people are watching you. Um, and start revising right after Ramadan. It doesn't have to be like you're doing like two juz or three juz a day. Yeah. But start revising some pace, some amount every single day as soon as Ramadan is done. Because... Even if you wait a week, that week is going to turn into a month. That month is going to turn into two months. I've seen it happen um, so many times. Subhanallah. So, let, so mashallah, you gave us uh, a lot of good advices. Jazakallah khairan for that. I wanted to kind of segue back to your studies and kind of go back to the party room. Um, now you're I'm just joking. Uh, so now you're joining the Alim program. Now, I know you said initially your intention was to join the Adam course program, uh, but one of the prerequisites or requirements there at the madrasa due to your age uh, and you were still in high school that you have to complete your tahfil, and which, mashallah, you did. At any point during this memorization process, were you ever demotivated to do the Adam program? And was was there anything where it's like, man, I just really wanted to become a scholar and study deen. Now I also have to spend two and a half years memorizing. Um, that's a good question. Um, as soon as I was done with my hiv, actually throughout my hiv, I, I, I knew that I really wanted to do alam course. That was my goal still throughout hiv. Um, but as soon as I finished, um, there this was a time where like I just finished my high school. And so um, uh, my, my father really wanted me to join uh, college. So he wanted me to go to college. And, you know, I started to think that, you know, uh, it's not a bad idea. Maybe I should be doing college and I could study part-time. And so I started uh, going to College of DuPage at the time, um, which, by the way, um, I, I want to make clear is that it is possible to go like directly directly from a Hibs Madrasa to like college. Yeah, not necessarily a university, perhaps. I mean, that is possible, but you can easily go to, you know, a community college right away. You don't have to like uh, waste time. At that, I, I got an actual high school degree from IIE, and so I was able to go directly into college. I didn't have to, like, you know, get a GED afterwards or, or study afterwards. Um, so it is possible. I want to make that clear to anyone that's listening that um, don't let that be, like, a demotivating factor, especially for parents, that what is my son going to do, you know, or my, or my daughter going to do? How are they going to get into college afterwards? What are they going to do with their life? Um, so I, I did, uh, I was going to um, college at the time, community college, and uh, very early on, I remember thinking to myself, um, like, why am I doing this? Um, you know, why am I, uh, you know, I, I know what my goal is yeah. to do alam course, but I'm not 
fulfilling that goal. And so I remember clearly, uh, I remember clearly thinking to myself, like one day when I was coming home from, uh, I was at college actually, and I was, it was in my classes, one of my classes, and I was thinking to myself, like if I were to get in a car accident and pass away on my way home, would I be happy with where I'm at right now? And the answer was clearly no, it was not. Uh, I would not be happy. So, you know, at that time I decided to myself that, you know, like I'm going to uh, try to uh, convince my father to let me do all of course. And Alhamdulillah, I was. Like my father and my mother are very supportive. They're very supportive, um, especially when you're trying to do dini work. They're very supportive, mashallah. Um, so I kind of bargained with him that uh, I'll do part-time college along with Alam course. Uh, that that happened for like <laughs> maybe one or two semesters. And then it just became all time, uh, full-time Alam course after that. Mashallah. So you joined the Alam program a little bit late. I did, yeah. So... Um, so as, at, right after I finished Hiv, um, I joined college, and then one semester into uh, that year, uh, I I stopped, or, or I rather I joined uh, IIE's Alam course. So I joined about like four to five months late. Um, yeah. So you just had a had a little bit of catching up to do, basically. Yeah. A little bit of catching up to do. Yeah, I I was taking some college. I was taking some Arabic classes online while I was in college, so I wasn't very behind. But there was something that I had to catch up on. Yeah. Mashallah. How long was the Alim program at the time at IAE? At the time, uh, it was a five-year program. Um, but while I was in I, probably my third year, or maybe my fourth year, they decided to make it a six-year program, which is actually uh, really beneficial because there were some books that were not as important, that were excluded from the curriculum, that were then uh, decided to be added back to the curriculum. So when I first joined, it was a five-year program. But uh, but when I was in the Alam course, they changed it to a six-year program, so I completed the six-year uh, program. Nice, mashallah. Uh, to some of the students, you know, if someone's studying and they're extending the curriculum, they already have an understanding of X amount of years and they add another year. Uh, some people may want to switch or change madaris or things like that. And this is something that uh, a lot of people may see that an individual studied in multiple places. Why was there ever a, a thought that crossed your mind to go somewhere else to study? I know everyone else's, you know, people studying in different areas, it's circumstantial. It doesn't mean that everyone has to shift around. And, you know, you're clearly one example where you stayed throughout. Did you ever want to go somewhere else uh, to study further or even within the Adam program itself? Uh, what what made you stay and stay grounded to IAE? Yeah, so there was, uh, in my last couple of years, um, some of my classmates did uh, go to different madaris just to, you know, to, to travel and get experience from other madaris in different countries, um, South Africa and Pakistan. Um, and that is kind of the norm for a lot of madaris in America, where in the last couple of years, you do go abroad um, and you try to study um, abroad. Um, so I, I did think about it at the time. Um, it was uh, something that I uh, I did consider. Um, but I just weighed the pros and the cons. And my circumstance at the time um, led me to staying at IIE. I also got married uh, in my at the end of my fourth year of Alam course. I was going to get to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, mashallah. So, uh, so alhamdulillah, I, I stayed and I, I don't regret that decision at all. Like I'm, I'm very happy with the decision, alhamdulillah. Wait, so you got married in the middle of your alim course, basically. Majority of the people complete their alim course and then get married. Mm. Uh, can you share a little bit of your experience with that? And I don't know if you want to touch upon it or anything like that with yeah. your classmates. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my, one of my classmates, uh, one of my very close classmates. That's what I meant by classmates. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Mulana uh, Abdullah Sayyid, um, he... Uh, his sister was also studying at the um, the the girls' school at the time, um, and so they were looking for her to get married. Um, and uh, I guess he knew that I want I was looking to get married as well. So Alhamdulillah, uh, it worked out that um, you know my brother-in-law is actually my classmate. Um, so I ended up marrying um, his sister, and so um, yeah, it, it is. I think most or a lot of teachers. Well, it really depends on the teacher. Some teachers would um, try to talk a student in the autumn course out of getting married, like don't get married because you will be distracted from your studies. But alhamdulillah, a lot of the teachers that I had, they were completely uh, supportive of getting married 
during the Alam course. Uh, there were some other students at the time who who got married as well during the Alam course. Um, and so they were supportive of it. Um, and I remember one of my teachers actually mentioned to me an interesting story where uh, his father was a teacher in a madrasa. And so he's he his father got married very, very early, like when he was very young, like in his teenage years. Um, and so he said that he remembers clearly like being a toddler um, attending the class of his father when his father was teaching. Like he would go to the classes and stuff like that. He was very young at the time. No, sorry. His father was still uh, studying at that time. His father was still studying at the time. I was about to say, I was like, man, I said subhanAllah, but I'm like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. yeah, his father his, his dad was still studying in the madrasa Studying at the, in the madrasa And he would attend the classes Or like he would remember his father going to the classes at that time While he was a toddler So like basically he was just very supportive He's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it As long as you stick to your studies um, And you stay focused Nice, mashallah um, Yeah, that's wild, man that, Subhanallah uh, So I wanted to ask you Now you, you're studying in the Ademiya program uh, the reason why I got confused there is because his father actually ended up teaching at the madrasa after he graduated. Oh, oh. subhanAllah, mashallah, mashallah. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned something about your classmates. They moved around a little bit, or some of them did. Um, and you've mentioned to me, or it's something I've kind of noticed as well, your class, uh, your graduating class, or even, not even graduating, just the guys who were there from that first year, uh, you guys are so close to each other, you know, over the years, mashallah, you guys started in 2011. Uh, how has that closeness trans? How has that closeness transformed into the relationship you guys have today? Yeah. So, uh, alhamdulillah, we have a very strong relationship. Um, all of our classmates, we still stick. In, uh, we still stay in close contact with one another. Um, we have a WhatsApp group that is very active. Um, we. Uh, it's actually. We're known as like the graduating class from IIE that is like the closest. Uh, alhamdulillah, we're we're always trying to uh, be there for like when if someone's getting married, we all try to attend. Uh, something's happening, we're always like there for each other. Very very close class. Alhamdulillah, even till this day, it's been like several years since we graduated, um, and some of the students left in between, but we're still like a very close uh, group of friends. Alhamdulillah. Nice, mashallah. Is there any benefit? to studying locally as you did versus going abroad uh, compared to your other uh, fellow classmates? Yeah, so uh, there are some benefits uh, that I would see. Um, I'm, I'm, I know that there are a lot of benefits of going abroad, uh, 100%. Um, and I would advise someone who is able to go abroad to to experience, you know, to try to go abroad and, and perhaps, you know, um, I would not try to talk them out of it at all. Um, but at the same time, there are many benefits of uh, staying at one madasa, number one. And number two, somewhere that, um, somewhere that you know you're going to stay long term. So for example, I know that I'm going to be in America long term. So studying in, a, in America, especially now that there's so many madaris in America that have uh, the full alam course program. And they're very solid programs, mashallah, all of these madaris. So the benefit, or one of the biggest benefits that I see um, of staying in America and studying the entire alam course is that you already know the culture very well. You know a lot of the um, things that are happening, right? A lot of my friends, even prior to um, when I was... Uh, before Hiv, when I was living in Springfield, Ohio, as I mentioned, it was a very small city. So a lot of my friends growing up were non-Muslims. Actually, like almost all of them were non-Muslims. There were only a few, like two or three Muslims that were actually my age. So just knowing like the culture that you're in, knowing the society that you're in, dealing with those problems, um, it, it's really beneficial. And so um, that's also one of the benefits that I see staying staying within America and studying is that you kind of just understand the culture, understand the, depending on the teachers as well. So you may have, um, the teachers that I had, alhamdulillah, were very well versed with like what's happening in America. So they would, you know, teach a hadith and teach the high level fiqh works from that perspective. For example, Mufti Abrar um, Mirza, who is the founder of American Fiqh Academy and Dar al-Fatah Chicago, he taught us hidayah, um, and he taught us fiqh al-buyur. 
So Fiqhul Buyur is a section in Hidayah that it deals with um, financial transactions. So Islamic law regarding financial transactions. And so he would teach that from perspective of like what's happening because he works in corporate America. So he knows what's happening uh, in, in, in like corporate America and in finance in general. So um, that was very beneficial. Um, you may or may not get that studying abroad. Um, also, some of my other teachers, like Mufti Yasser, um, very, very just well-versed with everything that's going on in the world. He taught uh, a hadith from that perspective, um, and we were able to be like, alhamdulillah, um, get get a good understanding of the society, the culture that we're living in. So that was beneficial. So did you face any challenges? I mean, I asked you the same question with the, like your memorization. Was there ever a chance, or was there ever a time where you wanted to leave or was there anything that came in the way or was it you know by the time you got to your fourth year you got married you're just like I have to make this happen and I have to finish there are times throughout uh Adam course where you may think to yourself that you know there are you know some of your friends growing up with that, that you grew up with that you know you're in your fourth year you completed your fourth year they completed their college right so they already completed their college they're like done with their studies um you may even uh, you know, you still have two more years of your studies. Uh, so there is that perspective where you think like, if I had gone to college, I may have been done with college at that t- at this time now, you know. Um, so you may think of it from that perspective, but, and I know a lot of students do, so I, I, I do want to make that clear. But alhamdulillah, I, 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 none of that was something that, those thoughts were not um, thoughts that wanted to make me stop studying. I, I wanted to. I always wanted to continue studying, um, and uh, there was ne- there was never a point where I just wanted to completely uh, quit or or stop. Um, but yeah, those thoughts do occur. Where like, you know, if I had gone to college, I would have been done with college. Maybe you could have joined medical school. You would probably be done with halfway through medical school uh, by the time that you graduate from Alam course. So you do have those type of thoughts. Um, but but those are those should not be a reason to like dissuade you from from uh, completing your goal. And I want to make it very clear that a person who starts alim course and they realize you know you will realize very early on uh, w- whether what you were expecting alim course is actually what you're getting or not. Right? A lot of people when they're joining alim course they feel that like you know it's, you're gonna have a huge spiritual boost every single day. They're going to, you know, go in and come out like, you know, wanting to pray the hajjah. They're having like a huge spiritual boost. That's not like there's a lot of dry times throughout your studies, a lot of dry subjects. And so um, it is a process uh, to to continue through that. And Alam Course is not meant for everyone. So if someone does join Alam Course and they are not, uh, you know, very, they're not feeling it too much or, you know, they're not, it's not what they expected it to be. They shouldn't force themselves to complete if they don't feel like uh, this is something that they want to do long term. So you really have to, uh, you know, take advice, look at what you want, uh, keep your goals in mind and stay focused according to what your goals are. Nice. So, mashallah, you continued onwards to Darul Ifta Chicago. Uh, why did you want to? I know initially you wanted to become an Adam. Then they they told you you have to become hafiz first, mashallah. What motivated you to become a mufti as well and complete your studies in Darul Ifta? So, um, one of the things that motivated me the most to want to do Ifta course. First of all, I've always I always had in my mind that I wanted to do some form of tukhassus. I wanted to specialize in something, whether that be hadith or fiqh. Or tafsir. So the Adam course was not the end goal. It was you always wanted to study further after yeah, that. Yeah. I, I wanted to study uh, past that. Um, I yeah, I really wanted to study past that. And so um, uh, I was looking at different options about studying abroad. And right at that time, uh, Mufti Yabar Saab, he decided uh, to start the Dar al Chicago. And so I thought that it was a beautiful opportunity to join um, I already knew him very well. He was my teacher for the past two years prior to that, in the fifth and the sixth year of Alam course. Um, and so it was just a wonderful opportunity to join. Alhamdulillah, it was a beautiful experience. Nice, mashallah. So tell me a little bit, you mentioned Mufti Abramers and you mentioned the American Fiqh Academy, and I saw that you were listed as one of uh, the people who contribute to the 
uh, fatawa or sorry, the resolutions that are up there. Uh, can you tell me, can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, Mufti Abar Saab, a couple of years ago, started uh, an amazing initiative, uh, the American Fiqh Academy, um, that deals with contemporary issues. So researching contemporary issues. Um, and so uh, anyone could go on their website, American Fiqh Academy, um, and see the types of resolutions that uh, the American Fiqh Academy puts out, mashallah, uh, very pertinent issues to uh, what we're dealing with as Muslims in America. Um, alhamdulillah, after uh, completing Iftah course, Mufti Abar Saab uh, invited the graduates to join as well. And so I, as well as uh, my classmates who finished, we are uh, contributors, we're members of the American Fiqh Academy as well. Nice, mashallah. And you completed your, the Dal Iftah program is how long? The Dal Iftah program is a two-year program. Uh, it's a two-year program. Um, so, when I joined, uh, it was uh, it was a one year program on site with the condition that uh, you know the second year um, the students are working on their thesis and working on different fatawa like under Mufti Abar Saab. Um, but it's a two year program, and now it's uh, completely on site. You have to be there for two years. Okay, nice, mashallah. So uh, I mean, <laughs> as a Mufti, don't you get some? Uh, out-of-the-box questions? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. Like, there are... I think that's one of the um, things that people really misunderstand about, like, ulama and muftis. They feel that, like, you know, ulama live in bubbles. You know, they don't really know what's going on uh, in the world. In yeah. the so, yeah, can you expand a little bit upon that? Because, for example, I'm, I'm assuming you're getting questions about... Uh, you know, Mufti Saab, uh, marijuana is legal in Chicago now. Uh, is it okay? Is it jazz, you know, to utilize it? Or, uh, you know, with the whole cryptocurrency and just so many things that are going on in the community, uh, how do you adapt to it? How do you research it? How do you be in the know-how of everything that's happening? Yeah, so um, one of the things um, that a lot of people think is that, you know, an alim or a mufti is just, you know, focused on teaching, 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 or leading salahs or dhikr, or they don't really know what's going on in the real world, right? But there's so many issues that you have to deal with, so many different issues from all different perspectives. First of all, um, you know, if you just think about it logically, when a person is going through a religious crisis, when they're going through a problem, the first person that they're going to go to is, you know, the religious scholar, yeah. right? So if they're having a problem with their children or they're having a problem with their finances they want to know if it's halal or and they have a you know question about marijuana or, or cryptocurrency or whatever it may be they're going to come to the scholar right so that that just shows that like um the scholar has to be very well-rounded right the scholar has to be very um understand what's going on in the culture that he's living in and so there's a lot that goes into the research um understanding the situation making sure you know what the person is conveying to you. Um, and and that's the first step, making sure that you understand the situation. And the second step is just research, which which is a huge process. Um, the majority of the process of, of coming to a uh, to to writing a fatwa. So um, I know a lot of people, they get scared of like coming to uh, their local scholar of their masjid or you know, an alim or a mufti because they think like, oh, what is mufti going to think about me? You know, what is alim going to think about me? You know, this is a personal issue. I'm having marital problems. What are they going to think? You know, now on, they're always going to remember that in the back of their mind. I mean, the reality is that I heard this when I was studying. Uh, before I even joined alim course, I heard this from my teachers at CPSA and it has stuck with me ever since. And I realized how true that is after graduating. Um, and what he stated at the time is that there's nothing that you can mention to me that will shock me. Like literally, there's nothing that you can mention without shopping. That's what he stated. And that is absolutely true. Um, yes, you will have sympathy, empathy with a person who is, you know, they come to you, you know, this is happening to my family, you know, this is happening to me. You feel bad for them. But don't think that the mufti is going to be shocked or that the scholar is going to be shocked. They've dealt with similar issues before. So don't, in, in essence, what I'm trying to say is don't be scared about going to the scholar with your problems. Uh, don't think that like, oh, they're going to judge me. They're going to think about me. They've never heard about this crazy thing before. No, most likely they have. Not only have they, but they probably researched it before. Um, and and so don't be scared about coming to, to a scholar with any problem that you may be facing. 
Okay, nice, mashallah. What about, I mean, like, what if you don't have access to scholarship and say, I don't have your phone number, I can't text you and be like, hey, uh, did my salah break? Was it valid? Was it invalid? Um, you know, a lot of times in this day and age, we're kind of just Googling things and we're just looking it up and trying to see if, you know, at times if there's an answer out there on the World Wide Web that pleases our nafs. Uh, can you give any advices to that? So there are a lot of great uh, institutions that are putting out work online um, that one could take benefit from. But the main thing is you have to make sure that wherever you're taking your knowledge from, that there's a proper sanad, you know, that they are actually graduates of a proper, you know, uh, schooling system, educational system. And they're not just someone who is, you know, self-taught and just picking up whatever they want and just putting out knowledge. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with, you know, taking knowledge from the internet um, as long as you verify where you're taking that knowledge from. There are great resources out there. Uh, but I think a lot of times people are unaware of, what resources are correct and valid resources um, and if they're invalid resources or if they're, you know, if the scholarship is lacking. So, um, you know, alhamdulillah, we have like the ability to contact people. They don't necessarily have to be local, right? You, you, know, you could contact people through phones nowadays and through text message and through email addresses. So I would definitely tell a person to try to be connected with some scholar. You know, it doesn't have to be like the greatest scholar in America or the greatest scholar in the world. Just have some scholar, his number or her number. And uh, if you have any questions, then ask them, you know, ask them, reach out to them. And don't think that you're bothering them necessarily. Yeah, obviously there are times where you shouldn't be bothering an individual like late at night or when you know that they're uh, busy or something like that. Um, but if you contact them and you give them a reasonable reasonable amount of time to reply, um, you know, you should have some sort of scholar that you're connected with um, that you can go to whenever you have some question. Nice, mashallah. So something interesting that I learned over the years, you and your family are kind of, you are involved in the textile industry. Um, how is that? Yeah, so... Um, Alhamdulillah, my wife and I, we uh, we really enjoy business. Uh, we're very like business-minded, entrepreneurial. We like to uh, venture into different things and try things out. So Alhamdulillah, we have uh, tried out the textile industry. And Alhamdulillah, we have uh, been doing so for the past couple of years. And it's been going well, Alhamdulillah. Um, we also have like a couple of different ideas. We're just, we just like exploring different business ideas. So Alhamdulillah. Um, yeah, it, you don't have to, that's another thing that, you know, uh, people should understand that you don't have to stick to one thing, right? You can try to venture out into different things. So if your passion is like ilm in knowledge, you can still do business as well, right? On the side. Um, if your passion is something else, you can, you could still do like studying on the side, right? So you should always try to learn and try to venture out into different things and try to be just, uh, well-rounded in whatever you're doing. Do you have any hobbies? What do you do in your free time? Um, free time, I read. I like to read a lot. Uh, and I'm, I'm not just saying like Islamic, <laughs> Islamic studies books, but um, even like uh, uh, fiction and, and uh, different things. Um, I am very busy with, with work and with uh, research in terms of uh, like Islamic studies. Um, so that does keep me really occupied. Alhamdulillah, I have a daughter as well. So uh, I try to spend as much time as I can with her. Um, you're also in school, right? I'm also in school, yeah. So I'm, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to complete my bachelor's um, about halfway through. Um, and I do play sports as well. Uh, I've been playing some tennis lately with some friends, um, volleyball every now and then. Yeah. So is it important for a scholar, or do you feel like, mashallah, what I've seen from you and during this discussion is that every time you stop something or you completed a task in terms of you completed your hivs, you went to school, but then you continued to your alim course. Once you were done with your alim course, you continued to your dal ifta. You're done with your dal ifta. You're continuing studying at, you know, you're doing your bachelor's. You're, you're just like this engine that's never stopping. Is it important for scholars to continue in pursuing their studies within the Islamic realm? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, <laughs> my intention was not to give like a, an example for myself, like I'm doing anything great. Um, but this is just something that I've learned from my teachers um, throughout my studies, that uh, you should never be satisfied with the amount of knowledge that you have. Um, and this is this is nothing like, you know, I'm doing, um, you know, that's amazing that nobody else does. This is just, I've always seen my teachers just never be satiated with their knowledge. They just want to continue uh, studying. As a matter of fact, many of the great scholars of the past would tell their students when they're graduating that, you know, you're not an alim, right? You just gained the tools to become an alim. So you still have to study for 20, 30 years and then, you know, maybe you'll be considered an alim. But the at the point that a person thinks like, you know, I'm an alim, I'm good, you know, I, I don't, I'm done studying. That's that's the huge deception from shaitan. Um, the scholars of the past were not like that. You find Imam Abu Hanifa, student of knowledge throughout his life. You find all of these, yeah, and, and the proof of them being a student of knowledge throughout their life is that they would constantly research and change their opinions at times uh, when they realize that, you know what, um, the opinion that I gave previously um, is not the opinion that I hold right now, which shows that they were constantly studying, they were constantly researching, um, and this is how people have to be. You should, in, in, Whether you're a scholar or you're not a scholar, you should never be satiated with the amount of knowledge you have. You should always have a drive to learn more and more. I think one of the greatest uh, examples of that, one of you know, one example of that is like Umar radiallahu anhu, uh, he didn't live very close to Masjid Nabawi. He lived a little bit of a distance away. And so him and his neighbor had a deal that one day, you know, like Umar would go and he would study at the Masjid. He would stay with the Prophet ﷺ. He would learn from him. Then he would come back and teach his neighbor at nighttime. Then the next day, his neighbor would go and stay with the Prophet ﷺ and study and then come back and teach Umar at nighttime. Why? Because they had jobs. They had to take care of their family. They had other things that they had to do. But it shows that they were not just satisfied with, oh, I'm a Sahabi. Yeah, the Prophet ﷺ was over there. If we have any questions, we'll just go and ask him. But they actually made a system that they can continue learning. And so that's important for all of us to do. Nice, mashallah. So I have two or three more questions left for you. Um, which teachers during your course of studies, mashallah, if I were, if I wasn't so terrible at math, I think 11 years, mashallah, you spent studying from two and a half to three years of HIVS, six years of Alim program, and then two years in Daral Ifta. That adds up, right? Yeah, okay. Um, which one of your teachers impacted you the most uh, in your life today? So alhamdulillah, every one of my teachers um, impacted me in their own way. Uh, I have phenomenal teachers, alhamdulillah, that I can literally like uh, mention so many characteristics about each one of them and mention how they impacted me. Um, but if your question is which which teacher impacted you the most or influenced you the most, I would have to say uh, Mufti Barsab. Um, Mufti Barsab is someone that, um, not just me, but I think anyone that has studied with him, he has a very, very strong influence and impact on his students, mashallah. May Allah to protect him, which is very rare um, to have an impact like that on your students. Um, he undoubtedly um, is a teacher that uh, impacted me uh, tremendously, and I would say the most. Um, just being under his tutelage, just being uh, um, learning from him, uh, being able to try to take whatever experience I am able to take from him, um, that is uh, definitely something that I benefit from a lot, alhamdulillah. Nice, mashallah. So last question I have for you. Being a part of Masjid Uthman, uh, being a staff member here, teaching classes, leading tarawih, uh, do you have any plans for the future and what, where, what direction you want to take the community? So alhamdulillah, um, Masjid Uthman is growing, is growing a lot. Uh, we're, we're, alhamdulillah, the masjid is building, so it's being constructed. So that's there, inshallah, which will be done, inshallah, by next year, hopefully the end of next year. But the academy um, is is growing like exponentially, mashallah. The maktab program, you have the uh, alam course program, you have Sunday program, you have we uh, weekday programs for like all different age groups. Um, so there are s the hivs program. I mean, there's just so many that I'm going to forget about even. There's just so many, mashallah. Um, and now we have like the YouTube uh, channel as well that we're putting out uh, information and in, in educational programs. Out Shout there. out so, Sunday Tafsir. 
<laughs> also, I mean, mashallah, Mulana Harun is doing a lot as well uh, on on the YouTube channel. Um, so there's there the sky's the limit. Like Alhamdulillah, I mean, there's so much that can be done. And Alhamdulillah, here at Majlathman, we have like a lot of things that we have envisioned that we haven't even started yet. And so, um, with the opening of the masjid, inshallah, I just see the community growing and growing. Inshallah, may Allah will accept and uh, and grant sincerity in all of our hearts. Amen. Jazakallahu khairun Mufti Saf for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Again, it's not part of your job description. Uh, you're not going to get fired if you don't come on. Uh, this is just something that we're doing on the side. Alhamdulillah. Um, thank you so much. And if anyone wants to find you, uh, you'll, you're playing tennis. I mean, where can they catch you? Well, I don't play tennis as much as I would like to, but um, uh, my email address probably. I'm not, I don't have a very heavy social media presence. Um, but probably just my email address, Zeeshan Ahmed, Z-E-S-H-A-N-A-H-M-E-D-518 at gmail.com. If they have any questions, they can reach out to me, inshallah. Okay, inshallah. So, they, so for everybody listening, anyone has any questions, any fatawa, Zeeshan.Ahmed518 at gmail.com. I'm, I'm happy you messed it up. <laughs> oh, there's no dot. <laughs> I'm not going to clarify it now. It's okay. okay, they can listen back. Ahmed 518 at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, concerns, whatever you have, he'll answer all of them. His response time is phenomenal. Under 12 hours, you will get an answer, inshallah. It's a joke. <laughs> all right, inshallah. Jazakallah khairan for... Jazakallah khairan for having me on. Inshallah.